From the in-town Jewish Academy in Atlanta, Georgia, I am Rabbi Ari Solish, and this is Knowledge on the Deeper Side. In this podcast, we discuss the most inspiring and stimulating Jewish ideas, ideas that challenge the way you think and feel. To sponsor a class or episode, please visit intownjewishacademy.org slash sponsor. And now, on to the episode. All right, welcome to Daily Power Parsha. Today is Tuesday, June 14th, 2022. Torah portion this week is Bahaloscha or Bahalotcha. And we are up to the second reading. Today, yesterday we just did the first reading. So today we're going to do the second reading, maybe the third, so we can catch up to the days. Uh, let's jump in and see what we are covering. So Torah reading opens up. Um, with a continuation of what we read yesterday about the inauguration of the Levites into their service. So the Torah portion started with a conversation about the menorah and about how you light the menorah with all the flames pointed to the center. And then it segues into a conversation about inaugurating the Levites into service, into action, which makes sense in this context because we did the census of the people. We did a census of the, of the Levites and we discussed the three Levite families, Gershon, Kat, Merari, exactly what they did. We counted them from the ages of 30 to 50, which is the age of active service. And now we're discussing, well, how do they, once they hit a, the eligible age or whatever it is, how do they actually get um, plugged into that service? Is there a process? Is there a ritual? The answer is yes. So yes, we read about um, um, the ritual involving, um, there were sacrifices that were brought. There was a, a hair cutting or a hair shaving ritual. Um, and I, I mentioned yesterday the uh, the significance of that according to Kabbalah because the Levites correspond to Gevura and Gevura, if it's left to grow on its own, right? Like hair, if it's just left to grow unkempt, Gevura could lead to nastiness and anger and vitriol. It could lead to a very ugly place. So if you're a Levite, make sure the hair is cut short. In other words, that it doesn't, the gavura doesn't go, doesn't run wild. All right, that takes us into reading number two. That was a quick recap of reading one. Reading two, Numbers chapter eight, verse 15. Following this, and this includes um, the, the haircutting and the, the waving and the offerings that were brought for the Levite. Following this, the Levite shall come to serve in the tent of meeting. In other words, after the process, the ritual, they're ready to serve. You shall cleanse them and lift them as a waving. Rashi, we studied Rashi yesterday that mentions that it says that there are three mentions of the waving. And Rashi explained why this was the third of three. It mentions three times that they're lifted up or waved around as a wave offering. Anyway, for what we discussed yesterday. But cleansing them and lifting them as a wave offering. Oh, I forgot to mention. There was also the sprinkling of the red heifer. Uh, um, um, mixture on the Levites, mikvah, uh, cleansing their garments. There's a bunch of different steps involved in the preparation. Let's continue verse 16. For they are wholly given over to me from among the children of Israel. Now, wholly given over is, uh, I would say, a, um, a non-literal translation of the words in Hebrew, nisunim, nisunim. Nisunim means, natan means to give. Nasan is to give. 
Nisunim, Nisunim means they are given, they are given. Or they are, they are, uh, yeah, they are given, or given, given. Hey, Mali, they are to me, God says, given, given. The translation here is not given, given, it's wholly given. Because when you say it twice, you mean it's really, really given. They're given, given over, meaning they're complete in totality. So the Levites are totally to be, are totally dedicated or supposed to be totally dedicated to God and the service and the temple and the Mishkan and, and all the, their, their various tasks. Instead of those that open the womb, all of the firstborn of Israel, I have taken them, the Levites, for myself. In other words, in, and this is, a, this is a fact that we've said, I don't know, many, many times already in the Torah, that instead of the firstborn, who were supposed to be the ones to serve me in the temple, in the Mishkan, instead, because of the sin of the golden calf, I've chosen the Levites. So instead of those that opened the womb, all the firstborn of Israel, instead of them, the firstborn, I have taken them, the Levites, for myself. Why? Here you go. For all the firstborn among the children of Israel are mine, whether man or beast, since the day I smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. In other words, the firstborn were supposed to have been indebted to my service because I saved their lives in the tenth plague. But that was not the case. I have sanctified them for myself, and I have taken the Levites instead of all the firstborn of the children of Israel. Again, it's repetitive. It's, I want to say repetitive, but it repeats this idea um, and it really drills it in our minds that the firstborn were supposed to be within uh, uh, serving God out of a sense of gratitude and indebtedness because God saved their lives in the 10th and final plague. God did not take their lives, the firstborn of Israel. And yet they lost it. They lost it and it went to the Levites. Another theme that we read yesterday, I've given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons from among the children of Israel. So the Levites, although they serve God and serve on behalf of the people, they also are in service to help and assist the priests, Aaron and his sons, the Kohanim. So I've given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons from among the children of Israel to perform the service for the children of Israel in the tent of meeting and to atone on behalf of the children of Israel, so that the children of Israel will not be inflicted with plague when they approach the sanctuary. That seems to be, as we'll see in Rashi, a coded message that one of the roles of the Levites is to ensure that no one should approach the Mishkan, the sanctuary, in a state of uncleanliness or if they're not the right person to approach. Um, and in that way, that will ensure that the children of Israel will not be inflicted with a plague when they approach the sanctuary if the Levites are doing their job. In other words, to speak very bluntly, part of their job was to be the bouncers, right? You have a, a bar, a club, you have bouncers outside. Yeah, you can't go in, you can't go in. Part of the Levites' mission, part of their job was to make sure that no one gets close in a, to, to, to any sacred space if they should not belong, if they do not belong there. All right, so that's the instruction. All of that is what God told Moses to, to relate to the people, to the Levites, to the, to the Kohanim, to the, to the people. So Moses, Aaron, and the entire congregation of Israel did this to the Levites. The children of Israel did in accordance with all that the Lord had instructed Moses regarding the Levites. 
the Levites cleansed themselves and washed their clothes. Then Aaron, so just to be clear here, a few verses ago, we wrapped up the commandment, God's instructions for what to do. Now we're reading about how they actually um, executed this, um, this, uh, this, this mission. The Levites cleaned themselves and washed their clothes. Then Aaron lifted them as a waving before the Lord, and Aaron atoned for them to cleanse them. After that, the Levites came to perform the service in the tent of meeting before Aaron and before his sons. They did to them just as the Lord had commanded Moses regarding the Levites. Okay, so that everything was done according to the commandment. Now let's stop here at verse 22, because it's uh, there's a new intro here, God speaking to Moses. We're going to stop, we're going to pause here for a moment, and we're going to look at Rashi. Okay, let's pull up some Rashis. Holy given over... In the Hebrew, it's nisunim, nisunim. As I said before, nisunim, nisunim, given, given. Rashi says, the double expression, denoting given over for the service of carrying and given over for the singing in the temple. In other words, there were two things, two jobs that the Levites had. They had to carry the Mishkan and transport it through the, uh, through the wilderness. And they sang accompanying the, the, the Kohanim, uh, the priestly service of the actual sacrificial service, the Levites sang and played music. They had instruments and they sang. Very uh, beautiful choir and, and orchestra. So they had two roles. They carried and they sang. So I'll share with you a, a, an insight, um, more of a Hasidic insight. That is that... Um, Schlepping, I think maybe I said this a few weeks ago. It probably came up then. Schlepping and singing, right? We have uh, the Levites had two roles. They schlepped and they sang. We for sure talked about it two weeks ago. Anyway, they schlepped and they sang. And the, and the message here is, just very briefly, that when you realize that what you're carrying is a mishkan, what you're carrying is maybe a heavy burden, but it's not a burden at all because it's God's, it's God's temple, it's God's sanctuary, it's God's tabernacle. So it doesn't feel like a burden. It might be objectively heavy, but it's not a burden. It's not a it doesn't hurt. It doesn't doesn't feel not good. You feel excited about it. You're you're carrying it with joy, and then you can sing. So the question in life is not how heavy is how heavy is the weight on our shoulders, but how we frame it, how we understand it. So a person could be, you know, in a stage of life where they they are entrusted or they. They have to take care of an aging parent, right? An aging parent needs needs help. And so the child, as a child, the adult might say, oh, I have caretaking. Oh, it's such a big responsibility. I can't do it, whatever. And it might be very valid, but that's, oh, I have to make arrangements and oh, this, that, or the other. It's like so hard. It's so this, it's so that. The question is, do we view it as a burden in this case? Or do we view it as, you know, as an opportunity, as an opportunity to help, as an opportunity to you know, hakar satov to um, to thank and to show gratitude, to demonstrate gratitude to the one that took care of us when we were children, and so it's a it's a different you know that doesn't make any that doesn't minimize the number of phone calls or that doesn't alleviate you know the um, the work that's t- that that's needed, but what it does is it reframes it, and a person instead of feeling it as like oh look what I have to do now, but it's like I'm honored to have this responsibility it's just a different different mindset so here we have um an allusion to that with 
caring and singing, sing what we carry, and it, and it changes the entire picture. Okay, let's continue. Um, once again, the Torah and Hashem reminds us that it, it should have been the firstborn, right? Rashi, the firstborn are mine by right, for I protected them among the Egyptian firstborn, and I took them for myself until they erred through the golden calf. So now I have taken the Levites instead. Verse 19, the children of Israel is mentioned five times in this verse. Wow. Didn't even notice that before. Okay. Let's, let's go through them. Verse 19, children of Israel, children of Israel, children of Israel, children of Israel. Mm, I see four times. Hold on. B'nai Israel, B'nai Israel, B'nai Israel, B'nai Israel, B'nai Israel. Oh, yeah, there's five. Um, why is it not here? Children of Israel. One, two, three, four. Oh, the fifth is right here. They. So that the children of Israel will not be inflicted with plague when the children of Israel, B'nai Israel, when, they, when the children of Israel approach the sanctuary. I think the translators finally gave up after four. They're like, that's it. They're getting a pronoun, they. That's it. Out, tapping out. But in the Hebrew, every single time it says, B'nai Yisrael, children of Israel. Rashi, the children of Israel is mentioned five times in this verse, thus declaring the affection God has for them. For their mention is repeated in one verse as many times as the five books of the Torah. In other words, five times corresponding to the five books of the Torah. That indicates how beloved and how much God loves the, the, the degree of affection that God has for the Jewish people. I saw this in Genesis Rabbah, Bereshit Rabbah. Ah, look at this. The note here is from the publishers, the editors. Note that this is not found in Bereshit Rabbah, but in Leviticus, Vayikra Rabbah. Interesting. Okay, I'll let the sources fight themselves out. But the point is, five times, five books, very dear and beloved. So that the children of Israel will not be afflicted by plague, so that there will be no need for them to approach the Holy Sanctuary. Um, the Levites will make sure that no one has a need to approach physically, for if they do approach, there will be a plague. Da, da, da. All right, so everyone did what they were supposed to. Rashi says beautifully all the roles. Moses presented the Levites. Aaron lifted them up, and the Israelites rested their hands on them. Those were the three the three um, roles and the three functions. One second. Let's let some people in. Okay. Hey, Mark. Hi. Great to see you. Good. It's good to see you. Hope you're good feeling. Hope you're feeling good. Getting there. Thank you. Whew. I've been thinking about you. Okay. Good. Yeah. I was hoping Thank I would you. see you soon. Okay. Good. Baruch Hashem. Yeah. All right. Faye, good to see you twice in one day. Unbelievable. That's great. Um, welcome, Faye. All right. So let's pick it up in Rashi, verse 22. The Levites can't perform the service. They did to them just as the Lord had commanded Moses, Rashi. This is written to extol those who performed this right and upon whom it was performed, for none of them objected. Both the parties that were to work with the Levites and the Levites who were worked with, no one complained, no one fetched, 
No one objected. No one said, what is this? I don't need the sprinkling water. I don't want to, you know, uh, be waved. I don't want to cut my hair. Everyone was agreeable to the ritual that God had set out. Okay, we're up to verse 23. And we're going to start a bit of a um, the next section. Still about the Levites, but the next piece. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is the rule concerning the Levites. So now we have a rule. Zos asher This is what should be done to the Levites. Listen to this. From the age of 25 years and upwards, he shall enter the service to work in the tent of meeting. So what, what age is the age of service? 25 years and up. And how long does the Levite serve? From the age of 50 until 50. From the age of 50, he shall retire from the work legion and do no more work. Now he still could sing and do other things, but from the work... The heavy lifting at 50, he's done. So what are the ages of, shall we say, I'm going to say serviceable, I don't think that's the right term, of servicing Levites, 25 to 50. And I know what you're thinking. 25 to 50? It's 30 to 50. We've talked about 30 to 50. I don't know, last week's Torah portion, we've talked about it very often, how the, the, the age of service for the Levite was 30 to 50. Suddenly here, plot twist, the Torah throws out the number 25 as if we're not paying attention. It's like, oh, I want to see if you're listening because now I'm going to tell you it's 25 and let's see if anybody catches this little uh, discrepancy. What's going on here? Don't worry. The commentaries note it. There's a very real reason why suddenly now it talks about 25 and we're going to study that soon. But back inside, let's do the last verse. We'll go back to Rashi after that. He shall minister... Uh, the 50-year-old, the 50-year-old plus Levite shall minister with his brethren in the tent of meeting to keep the charge, but he shall not perform the service. Thus shall you do for the Levites regarding their charge. So they can do some tasks, but not the official avodah. They can do the lishmar mishmeret avodah. Oh, mishmeret. They can do the mishmeret, the guarding, but the avodah lo yavod, not to do, but they don't do the work. Now, let's do Rashians, because we have uh, some interesting some interesting Rashis. Okay, here we go. The Levites, this is the rule concerning the Levites. Age disqualifies them, but physical blemishes do not disqualify them. Unlike the Kohen, we read before in a previous Torah portion how when it comes to a Kohen, a priest, if they have a physical impairment, they cannot serve, they can still do other things, but they can't serve in the role of a of a, uh, uh, um, of, a, of, a, of a serving Kohen. But that's for a Kohen. What about a Levi? Nope. Physical blemishes do not disqualify the Levi. It's only age that matters. From the age of 25, says Rashi. Elsewhere it says from the age of 30. What's going on? Here it says 25, but elsewhere it says 30. How can this be reconciled? What's going on? What, what, what's, the, what's the starting age of a Levite? 25 or 30? So Rashi answers beautifully from the Talmud. However, from the age of 25, they came to study the laws of the service. 25 was the age in which they began to study an apprentice. They would study for five years, and at the age of 30, they would begin work. From here we learn that a student who does not experience success in learning for five years 
We'll never, we'll never experience it. There's a little bit of a plot twist there at the end, right? It's like five years is, is the, we should already know after five years if you're getting it or you're not getting it. A Levite, it took five years to train. If it took longer, then maybe he would never, he would never be, be appropriate, be, be, uh, be, be cut out for the job. What about, a, what about you and I? So yeah, same thing. A student who studies, you know, gives it his all for five years and still sagatenish, uh, it's not going. Okay, so maybe, maybe move on to something else. It's a very curious idea. But I do want to speak about the discrepancy between 25 and 30 and what it means in our lives. So again, many verses, it talks about the serving age of a, of a Levi, sorry, for 30 to 50. Here we have one verse that says 25. Rashi explains, based on the Talmud, 25 is the age in which the, the learning begins or the hands-on learning begins. And at 30, that's when the training wheels come off and then they're, they're off and running in the actual service. It reminds us, aside from what Rashi said about five years being like a, a good litmus test of whether or not a student is, is, you know, can apply themselves. Aside from that, it reminds us that before we do something, we should attempt, if at all possible, to become proficient in what we're doing. Five years of educational and, and, and five years of education and training went into the Levites. Five years invested in their training. And we should not sell ourselves any shorter than that. We should also invest in our whatever it is, whether it's our jobs, right? Invest in training and education, continuing education, or I would say more appropriately, our spiritual lives. Let's not take the shortcut and hope we're going to get there to the destination. I'll give you a practical example. When it comes to a Jewish holiday, what comes to Shabbat, a weekly Jewish holiday, what we get out of it will always be commensurate to what we put into it. So if we go into Shabbos cold, if we go into Shavuot cold, if we go into Passover cold, no prep, no thinking about the holiday, you know, no working on the themes or whatever, if we just go into it, the expectation that something's going to happen in that experience is it's, it's, it's very low, very low expectation. What are the odds that if I didn't think about it once and now the holiday is here, that I'll be moved and inspired? It's probably not so likely. But if I put in the effort, I put in the work, I put in five years of training, so to speak, I put in five years of education, I, I laid the foundation, now my experience is going to be an experience. Now my work will be work. We learn from the Levites that it takes five years sometimes, metaphorically, it takes time to get ready to jump in to something that's meaningful. You can't just show up cold and expect to get hot. It's not going to happen. You got you to gotta get ready for it. When you get ready for it, then it's going to be a meaningful experience. So the, the positive encouragement is for Shabbat, get ready for Shabbat. Thursday night, study Shabbat, do some cooking, get into the, to the spirit of Shabbat. By the way, the Talmud says that the greatest sages, the greatest rabbis would make sure to do some shopping and some cooking on their own. So I know for all of those who love cooking, myself included, sure. But some people don't like cooking and would rather, uh, you know, like, let's just get it and, and get it done. Even in that case, one should put a little bit of effort into it. I'm, I'm not saying there's no effort, of course, even heating up something, whatever. But one should consciously put in a little bit of, little bit of uh, you know, effort in getting ready for Shabbat because it just, it, your Shabbat will feel different. It will feel different. The service of the, of the Levite at 30, having gone through five years of education and training, is 
incomparable to a Levite that would just show up at 30 and say, hey, I'm here. Not only because the Levite wouldn't be sure what to do. I mean, you're carrying planks of wood and loading them up onto a wagon. I mean, does it take five years to get ready for that? What's the five years? It's about getting initiated in the experience. Yeah, Mark. I've got a note on that. Uh, This is about the the five years. It says, that is, he does not remember that which he studies. Uh, And this is Rashi to Hulun 24a. And so, in other words, it's not, so in other words, if after five years, he doesn't remember. So. That would, right. So Rashi's, Rashi's application is, when it comes to study, if after five years it's still not where it needs to be, then maybe move on to something else. But what you're clarifying is, as Rashi clarifies on the Talmud there in Hulin, it's not just after five years he can't get into his head. It's if after five years he's forgetting his learning. It's not, it's not really integrating. And again, maybe it's... I do want to share an insight that I heard. Let me ask you one thing. Yeah, sure. Of course. Hulin is a Talmudic tractate. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Now, I do want to share an insight, a beautiful insight that I heard Sunday night at a Fabrangan. There was a Fabrangan in Cobb County, like between East and West Cobb. There was a, uh, a, a Chabad, sorry, a Georgia Chabad rabbi mini conference. You know, like they have the big one in New York where all the rabbis from around the world come. So there are regional ones. The Rebbe actually was, um, all the years, the Rebbe wanted not only the big one, but also smaller regional ones. So there's one, there's been ones for the Southeast. There's, all, there's also one for the Southeast, but there's one for Georgia, just a Georgia, you know, for the state. I mean, wow, there's a lot of, it's like you forget how many Chabad rabbis and, and Rebbitsons, of course, there are in Georgia. By the way, the, the Rebbitsons had their conference a few weeks ago. This weekend, Sunday, Monday, was... Uh, Sunday and the first first uh, morning of Monday was the Chabad rabbi's version of it. So I heard, and, and, and we brought in a rabbi from Seattle, Rabbi Farkash, to speak, be like the guest speaker in Fabranger. He said something really powerful, something really powerful. And it's on the famous story of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was one of the greatest Torah teachers of all time. Rabbi Akiva, he's like, you know, who can match up with Rabbi Akiva? And yet we know, famously, that he did until the age of 40. He had no Torah knowledge or scholarship under his belt. He didn't even know how to read Hebrew. And what happened? What turned everything around? Well, the story goes, the Talmud tells us, one day, he's walking by and he sees a, a stone, a rock, and it has a hole in the center. He thinks to himself, how do you have a, a rock with a hole? A perfect hole right in the middle. How, how do you, how's that possible? Till he sees that there's water dripping. There's water dripping on it. He says to himself, ah, it's water dripping on the rock, on the stone. That's how it happened. And he said to himself, if water can penetrate a stone, then my head, he thought his head was like stone, like he couldn't, like we're talking about, he couldn't remember anything. Even my head, if I drip, drip, drip the Torah into it, my head could also retain Torah. And thus it was, and he was successful, etc. Happily ever after. But at the Fabrengan, the question was asked, the Rabbi, Rabbi Farkash asked the question, why does the story take place with a stone and not with a donkey? Maybe he saw a donkey with, with, uh, with... why a stone? 
He said, because a donkey, it, it's obvious, but let me just flesh it out. Because a donkey, you would never get to the point where the water bore a hole through the donkey, donkey God forbid, because the moment the drop falls onto the donkey, what's the donkey going to do? It'll shake it off. And then the next drop, it'll shake off, right? It'll shake it off. Which means when it comes to Torah, what Rabbi Kiva learned is not just the power of the water, but the importance of being a stone and sitting there and absorbing the water. You with me on this? If when inspiration comes our way, we're like, ah, for tomorrow. Ah, for someone else. Ah, I'm not spiritual. Ah, I'm not studious. Ah, Torah's not for me. If we start, you know, pushing it away, shaking it off, as it were, Who sang that song, Shake It Off? Was that, um, what's your name? Taylor Taylor Swift, is that her name? Shake It Off, something like that. Anyway, if if we shake off the Torah when when it hits us, if we shake off the water when it drips on us, it's never going to penetrate. So part of the part of the vision of what Rabbi Kiva saw was a stone that didn't move, dedication, commitment. So here we have a similar lesson, I think, for uh, for all of us, and that is when it comes to Torah, part of the power of it is not just the power of Torah, but part of the magic is as us who are committed. And I think this group is is a great example of this every day. I mean, you know, Monday through Friday, pretty much, more or less. Every day, commitment to Torah study, right? Commitment to being that rock that allows the Torah to drip on us day in and day out. And we know it's going to have an effect, and we know it does have an effect, and it is already has an effect. And part of it is not just the power of Torah, but it's, it's our commitment to being present and being open for that effect to happen. If after five years, is not remembering anything and not connected, okay, so then to pivot on some level. All right, back inside. Um, from the age of 50, he shall retire and do no more work. Rashi says, what work shall he no longer do? The work of carrying on the shoulders. In other words, the schlepping. When you're 50, no more schlepping. By the way, this is great. Imagine if all jobs allowed people when they hit 50, no more schlepping. We'll give you an office job. We'll give you a managerial job. You don't have to do the schlepping. Once you have 50, no more manual labor. However, he can return to the work of locking the gates and singing and loading the wagons. So there's still stuff that he can do, but the carrying on the shoulders, like the heavy lifting, no more. This is the meaning of he shall minister with his brethren in the next verse with his brethren. Um, Im Achoyhi. Achoyhi. Whatever. With his brethren means he could do the other tasks, just not the schlepping. Um, he shall minister with his brethren to keep the charge, to camp around the tent, and to assemble and dismantle it at the time of the travels. That the 50-year-old um, Levite plus can't do. All right. number chapter 9. Reading number 3. Here we go. Here we go. Now we're going to get into the fascinating tale of Pesach Sheni, the second Passover. By the way, listen to this. Tomorrow night is Torah studies. Wednesday night is Torah studies. We have the most incredible class tomorrow night all about this topic of Pesach Sheni, the second Passover. If you're wondering, what is the second Passover? Is it on my calendar? What do I need to do? 
Stay tuned. Let's read it. I'm not, obviously, I'm going to save a class, tomorrow night's class for tomorrow night. But I'm just telling you straight up, tomorrow night's class is a an absolute, just bombshell of a class. All right, here we go. Numbers chapter 9, verse number 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the Sinai desert in the second year of their exodus from the land of Egypt in the first month, saying. So let me just give you a quick uh, time and, and date. We're talking about year 2. One year after the Exodus, in the first month, so it's Nisan. What day of the month? I don't know. Maybe it's Rosh Chodesh. Let's see if Rashi fills us in. Um, okay, maybe, maybe Rosh Chodesh Nisan, one year later. And God instructs Moses regarding the Paschal Lamb uh, in, honor of, in, uh, in honor of the first anniversary of the Exodus that was about to happen. So he said, God says, the children of Israel shall make the Passover sacrifice in its appointed time. There you go. On the afternoon of the 14th of this month, the month of Nisan, you shall make it in its appointed time. That's uh, afternoon or late afternoon. In accordance with all the statutes and all its ordinances, you shall make it. So I want you to do, God says, I want you to do on the one year anniversary of the Exodus, on the 14th of the, of the month, you're going to do a Paschal Lamb, the offering, all of its uh, protocol, the right way at the right time. So Moses spoke to the children of Israel, instructing them to make the Passover sacrifice. So they did it. They made the Passover sacrifice in the first month, on the afternoon of the 14th day of the month, in the Sinai Desert. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so did the children of Israel do. All is good. All is fine. We have a beautiful vignette about the first Passover, I mean, first anniversary of the Exodus, that very first post-Exodus Passover with the Paschal Lamb, etc. However, we have a monkey wrench. What's the monkey wrench? Verse number six. There were men who were richly unclean. They were spiritually impure. Why? Because of contact with a dead person. And therefore, they could not make the Passover sacrifice on that day. So they just get word that they're going to do a Passover sacrifice, that everyone's required to do so. And these guys are like, whoa, we are, we've been in contact with a dead body, and we can't, there's no way we are going to be cleansed in time to do this Passover sacrifice on the right day. So they approached Moses and Aaron on that day. So they went uh, and said, what do we do? Why were they on clean contact with a dead person? According to one tradition, they were the ones that were designated to carry the coffin of Joseph. Remember Joseph? When he went down to Egypt, sorry, when he passed, before he passed away, he told his family, when you leave, take me with you. Take my remains with you. And so throughout the desert, throughout the 40 years, they were carrying uh, Joseph's coffin, which renders them impure. Contact with a dead person. It requires seven days and a red heifer. It requires a whole big process. So they couldn't, there's no way they didn't have enough time to make the Passover sacrifice, to make the Paschal Lamb. So they came to Moses and Aaron. Listen to this. Those men said to him, we are richly unclean because of contact with a dead person. But why should we be excluded? So as not to bring the offering of the Lord in its appointed time with all the children of Israel. It's not fair. We're being left out. Now I need to mention, they had 100% a valid excuse. 
they were doing a mitzvah, and because of that mitzvah of carrying the remains of Joseph, because of that mitzvah, they were impure, they were off the hook, no one would have any complaints against them. How come you didn't participate? They were richly impure for a good cause, they were off the hook. But what do they say? Lamanigara. We don't want to be off the hook. We want to have an opportunity to do it. We don't want to be um, excluded from this opportunity. We don't want to be left out with a good excuse. We're not trying to get away with it or get away without, you know, get away with not doing it. It's not our agenda. We want to do it. And they came passionately to Moses and Aaron and said, Lamanigara. Why are we excluded? It's not fair. It's not right. Moses said to them, Wait. And I will hear what the Lord instructs concerning you. He says, good question. Make a very valid point. Let me check in with the boss. So in response, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, any person who becomes unclean from contact with the dead or is on a distant journey, whether among you in future generations, he shall make a Passover sacrifice for the Lord. When? If you're unclean, when do you do it? In the second month, on the 14th day in the afternoon, they shall make it. In other words, anyone who cannot make, uh, for these reasons, anyone who cannot make the Passover sacrifice, the Passover offering, in its right time on Erev Pesach, um, and, and, and fulfill the mitzvah then, has a second opportunity, one month later. The second month, that's ER, the 14th day of the month of ER, in the afternoon, they shall make that Passover offering. They shall eat it, one month later, with unleavened cakes and bitter herbs, you're almost doing a, a, a seder. Not really a seder. You don't have to do the whole seder. You do the seder on the original Passover and that the fourteenth, the fifteenth of Nisan. Then, as but you would do, you would eat matzah, marar, and the carbon paste of the Paschal lamb on that second opportunity on that second chance day. That would be the mitzvah for that day. They shall not leave over any of it, anything from it, until the next morning, and they shall not break any of its bones. No leftovers, no breaking the bones. Why? You're not on Passover. We're rich. We're free. We're like kings. We're not impoverished. No leftovers. Leftovers are to, to be economical. No being economical here. No breaking the bones to suck out the marrow. It's fine. You have plenty, plenty of food. Live the life of, or, or express a scenario of opulence. Express freedom. And, 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 and having as opposed to enslavement and not having. They shall make it, the Passover offering, according to, with all the statutes connected with the Passover sacrifice, even though it's one month later. And even though it's not a holiday in which we abstain from work or we celebrate it with a special Amidah or special sacrificial service, otherwise, but there is one Passover, Paschal lamb with the bitter herbs and the matzah. But, the man who was ritually clean and was not on a journey, yet refrained from making the Passover sacrifice, someone who's like, yeah, I don't want to do it. Can't be bothered. Sorry, not going to do it. The first time around, right? Passover is, eh, I don't care. His soul shall be cut off from his people. If there's no good excuse, if it's just to be, to be rebellious and to say, no, I'm not going to do it, then you don't get it. There's no, in this case, it doesn't seem like there's a second chance, right? It means that he's uh, cut off from his people. For he did not bring the offering of the Lord in its appointed time. That person shall bear his sin. I guess it means if he missed the first and second opportunities and he doesn't care about it. Well, then that's that's that person opting out, in essence. So they're opted out. Now, if a, Yes. It sounds, I'm sorry to interrupt you. it sounds like he doesn't get the second opportunity. 
he didn't need it and he didn't take the first opportunity, he's done. He doesn't get a second second swing at the ball. Yeah, it's a great it's a great point. There's actually a dispute in the Talmud about this, which we'll get into tomorrow night at the class. It's a really good class tomorrow night. Um, under what conditions do we give someone the second chance? Like if they're clearly if they're you know innocently you know they're out of town or they're impure and they didn't they didn't they didn't do it on purpose and they got a second chance for sure. What about somebody who's like no I don't, I'm just not doing it like I'm not interested. Do they also have a second chance? It's going to tie into a three way dispute in the Talmud. It's a really it's a really great topic. So you're raising what I would call the logical uh, um, uh, conclusion or assumption, and that is that you get a second chance in cases, uh, in extenuating circumstances. Not when you're just, you don't care. If you don't care, then you're out. And yet, there's some wiggle room there also, according to some opinions, as we'll see. All right, now, final verse, and then we're going to go back to Rashi. If a proselyte dwells with you, and he makes a Passover sacrifice to the Lord, according to the statutes of the Passover sacrifice, in order that he shall make it. In other words, it follows the laws. It, fo- it follows the same protocol. One statute shall apply to you, to the proselyte and to the native-born citizen, whether they're a guest or whether they're born into it, doesn't make it a guest. Whether they're new to it or born into it, it doesn't make a difference. The Passover lamb offering has done the same. By the way, that itself is somewhat of a chidush. That the Torah has to mention this. You know, proselyte is in the Hebrew, it's ger. Ger means someone who converts. It's not just a stranger, it's a, someone who converts to Judaism. One might have thought, listen to this, one might have thought, well, if someone converts to Judaism, that means that their ancestors weren't enslaved. Because if they're not born, you with me on this? They're, 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 so then maybe they don't have to celebrate Passover with a Paschal lamb, which commemorates the Exodus. Their mishpacha didn't have the Exodus. Nope. Torah says not at all. Or, sorry, the Torah says that's a faulty conclusion. Au contraire, this person does celebrate Passover, does bring a Paschal lamb. Why? I think it's going to come up again. It's going to come up in tomorrow night's class. But the core idea is that this person had a soul that's connected with, with, the, uh, with the Jewish people. And therefore, even before they converted, and therefore, they can, they, they're indeed obligated to bring the Paschal lamb because this happened to them also. This is their story. All right. Um, let's go back inside and do some Rashi's, and then we'll close it out for today. Um, here we go. Rashi, Rashi, Rashi. Okay. They, uh, God told Moses in the first month of that second year, the portion at the beginning of the book of Numbers was not set until year, which is month number two, which is the census. In other words, if we're trying to put all the pieces in chronological order, this chapter, Numbers chapter 9, takes place before Numbers chapter 1. Numbers chapter 1 is the great census. That happened ER 2449. But one month prior, Nisan 2449, was this commandment regarding the Paschal Lamb. So the question is, why did Scripture not begin with this chapter? Why did this book of the Torah not begin with, chronologically, the first item, which is the commandment to, to, do, to bring the Paschal Lamb? Rashi answers, For it is a disgrace to Israel, that throughout the 40 years of wandering, the children of Israel were in the desert. Oh, sorry, that throughout the 40 years, the children of Israel were in the desert. They brought only this Passover sacrifice alone. The only time in the 40 years that they brought the Passover sacrifice was that year, the second year, or the one-year anniversary. 
And so, therefore, to not highlight that, we we kind of bury it in the middle of the book, not the middle, whatever. We bury it nine chapters in. We talk about it so as not to, you know, proclaim our uh, <laughs> lack of initiative all those years. Um, Children of Israel shall make the Passover sacrifice in its appointed time, even if it were to fall on, on, on Shabbat. And its appointed time also applies even if the majority of the people were in a state of ritual uncleanness. So even if it falls out on Shabbat, you do it. If Erev Pesach falls out on Shabbat, you do it. Even if majority of people are ritually unclean, you do it nonetheless. Okay, here we go. The afternoon of the 14th, you do it with all the statutes. These are the commandments directly relating to its body and unblemished male lamb in its first year. And its ordinances, so statutes versus ordinances, these are the commandments that relate to its body from elsewhere. Such as the seven days of eating unleavened bread and for disposing of leaven, um, etc. Okay. Okay, next. Moses spoke to the children of Israel. What, did, what does it teach us? Has not Scripture already said, and Moses told that the Lord's appointed holy days? So what's going on that Moses told them about this specifically? However, when he heard the portion dealing with the festivals at Sinai, he relayed it to them, and then he exhorted them again when, this time, when the time came to perform them. So this was the first actual mitzvah. So although we learned about it, now it's about to happen. Moses says, this is what needs to happen. All right, there were men who were ritually unclean, and they approached Moses and Aaron. While the two were sitting in the study hall, they came and asked him, is it, however, conceivable? Oh, sorry. So when, in the study hall, they asked him, at Moses and Aaron, is it, it is, however, inconceivable, inconceivable, that they approach them one after the other in this order, for if Moses did not know, how should Aaron know? It seems like they were sitting together, and he posed them both to Moses and Aaron together, because if they posed it to Moses, Moses says, I don't know, then why would they bring it to Aaron? How would Aaron know more than Moses? So seemingly, when it says they approached them, it means that they were sitting together and schmoozing or learning or whatever it is, and they got asked this question about what to do with uh, the uncleanliness. Maybe because Aaron was a Kohen. Yeah. He knows a thing or two. Yeah. So they said, we're ritually unclean. Why should we be excluded? Moses told them sacrifices cannot be offered in a state of ritual uncleanness. He replied, let the ritually clean Kohanim sprinkle the blood for us and let us ritually clean people and let ritually clean people eat the, eat the flesh. So they said, okay, let's compromise. Let Aaron do, the Kohanim do one thing and other people that are pure do another thing and that's it. We won't be so hands-on. He said to them, wait and I will hear. Like a disciple who is confident of hearing from a teacher's mouth. Fortune is the mortal who is so confident that for whatever, whenever he wished, Moses could speak with the Shekhinah. This portion... Should have really been said about said through Moses, like the rest of the Torah, but these people merited that it be said through them. For merit is brought upon, it's brought about through the meritorious. Megagel and Schosai de Zakai, so they were meritorious and they pushed and they wanted and they were dedicated to do this. Therefore, the mitzvah comes as a result of their efforts and their requests, as opposed to just coming top down. It's driven from below up to give them a share in the schos and the merit of this mitzvah. If this person is on a distant journey, there is a dot over the word. There's a dot over the word. To teach us that he does not really have to be far away, but even if he was merely 
outside the threshold of the temple courtyard through the, throughout the time allowed for the slaughtering of the Passover sacrifice, he's still allowed to do it. It still has another chance. On the second Passover, one may keep both leavened bread and unleavened food in the home. And there is no festival. The consumption of leaven is not forbidden except while he eats the sacrifice. So Rashi is just giving us a little Pesach Sheni, second Passover rules and regs. Um, you're allowed to have chametz. You don't have to clean your house. You can just don't eat your chametz, your, your bread, your sourdough bread, while you're eating um, the sacrifice in the matz namar. That would be a little awkward. Rabbi R. Yeah. This is an, an intriguing note. It says Rashi explains why God didn't. <clears throat> excuse me. Rashi explains why God did not teach the laws of this passage to Moses until a third party asked them. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Why didn't this come up, come around like every mitzvah in Torah where God tells Moses, here's the mitzvah. God should have told Moses, if people need a second chance, they have a second chance. No, it had to come from the people. So Rashi doesn't like flesh it out as the way that Hasidus fleshed it out. But the point is that if you want a second chance, the whole notion of a second chance is that I want to redeem myself. That has to come from you. You can't have that top down. You can't have redemption top down. It's not going to work. It has to be user driven. Right. Web 3.0. All right, let's jump back in. Final Rashi. Uh, if a proselyte dwells with you, makes a Passover sacrifice, I might think, Rashi says, that anyone who converts should immediately make a Passover sacrifice. Immediately means even before Passover. Therefore, Scripture teaches one statute shall apply to you, to the proselyte and the neighboring citizen. And this is the meaning of a proselyte dwells with you and becomes, uh, the time comes to make a Passover sacrifice with his friends. According to the statute of the Passover sacrifice and ordinances, he shall make it. In other words, wait till Passover. He doesn't do it right away. You might think that now that he's Jewish, so right, someone who converts to Judaism, now that he or she is Jewish, now is a great time to celebrate with a Passover offering. Nope, you have to wait till Passover and follow all the rules and regs of that. All right, so we had a few different laws in this reading. One law is uh, vis-a-vis Pesach Sheni, the second Passover. The other one is, is, is regarding the individual who converts to Judaism and is on the hook, is obligated to doing the offerings. Um, just a quick, uh, a quick note of ending and a, perhaps an inspirational note. What we see here from these people who requested a second chance is, as I mentioned and alluded to before, they did not take their out. They did not take their excuse and run with it. They had a very good alibi. They had a very good excuse. We can't. We would love to. We can't. For being honest, who of us wouldn't have taken that deal? Taking that opportunity, great. I save money, time, effort, and schlepping, and it's not held against me because God knows it's not my fault. Oynis, Rahmana Patrick. God absolves the ones that, uh, due to no fault of their own, can't or you know can't do something. So these people generally could not bring that offering. They were genuinely off the hook. It wasn't their fault. They were off the hook, and yet they fought for it. They told Moses, "We want to do it." They owned their Jewish experience. They owned it from the inside out. The message for us is, let's not do things because only because we have to. Let's do things because we want to. Because if you're only doing something when you have to, then what happens when you don't have to? You run for the hills. Oh, I don't have to? I am out of here. The point is, don't run for the hills. Don't just do it because you have to. Do it because it's part of you, because you want to, because it's integrated with you and your personality. That's the message of these individuals, this group that came to Moses. La mani gara. We want to do this mitzvah. We're not going to take our excuse. We're not going to take our out and run with it. We want to do it. 
All right, thank you for joining me today for Daily Power Parsha. Hope this resonated. Um, Faye and Mark and Sarah, it's good to see you guys. Mark, good health. Only good health. Thank you. Rafua Shalema, speedy recovery. Hope everything is beautiful. All right. Thank you very much. Pleasure, pleasure. We'll see you guys. Um, don't forget, tonight is the Zoom edition of JLI. Unbelievable class on human biases and um, the nature of human beings, the core inner nature of human beings, and how that applies, how that's reflected in Halach and Jewish law. Tonight at 8 o'clock, join me on Zoom, or Thursday at 12 noon in person with bagels and cream cheese and locks and cucumbers, tomatoes and onions. we got a whole a whole schmear, a whole spread going on Thursdays. Okay. Like the lions and the Wizard of Oz, the lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, bagels, exactly. Bagels and locks and cucumbers. Bagels, locks and cucumbers and cucumbers. That? Oh my. <laughs> but in a good way, in a very good way. All right, see so you all. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you a little bit later, tomorrow, or all of the above. Take care, everybody. Lots of blessings. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find us online at IntownJewishAcademy.org and on YouTube at IntownJewishAcademy. New episodes of the podcast come out a few times a week. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. It means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day.